This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Dora, have you given any thought as to how you want to bring in 2020? I can't believe it's so close that the year is coming to an end and we're coming into a new year. Yes, we're hosting in partnership with the Gasparilla Inn a wellness experience on January 27th in Boca Grande, Florida. What's going to happen down there? We're going to be doing cooking demonstrations. We're going to be walking on the beach. We're going to be doing yoga every morning. We're going to be learning from world-class teachers on how to take better care of ourselves. I mean, it's just going to be amazing. So go to our website, bbrconsulting.us, to learn more and to sign up. And we look forward to seeing you on January 27th. Can't wait to see you all there. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are so happy to be here with Suzanne Murray, who's the program director of the Global Health Program of the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. Suzanne, welcome to HealthGig, and could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure and an honor. In terms of who I am and my background, without going too far back, I've known I wanted to be a wildlife vet since I was five, since I was watching TV with my dad. And we were watching National Geographic and Dr. Goodall was on there. And I told my dad, like, that's what I want to do. And at that point, he said, OK. And in my mind, if dad said, OK, then it was just done. And so I knew at that point. So when everybody else and all my friends were going through, you know, teenage years and high school and college trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life, that part was really easy because, you know, whether it's a lack of introspection or just I knew ahead of time. So I always knew that I would be a wildlife veterinarian. I didn't know that I'd have the opportunity to save human lives as well. So that's been a real nice addition to the puzzle. The other thing in terms of things coming full circle, when I was in veterinary school, Dr. Goodall was my thesis advisor. So I ended up working in Tanzania along with her on a project looking at chimp, baboon, and human health. So it was kind of an idea of what was to come. So already at that point, I felt like, well, this is great. I've done it, right? And then I had the chance to work at the National Zoo as the head of the hospital. And then after doing that for 13 years, during that time, we had an opportunity to participate on a lot of different programs internationally, wildlife programs and and increasingly human health programs. And that was the point at which we felt like our attention was a little bit too divided between the zoo's really, really valuable animal collection, a lot of endangered species, and the work we wanted to do internationally. One of the many great things about Smithsonian, the mission is to increase and diffuse knowledge. So we should be doing that internationally, but how do you do both? So working along with the director of the zoo and the Smithsonian leadership, we created this Smithsonian Global Health Program to address those issues and make sure that we are taking what we know about managing animal care under human care here in the States and taking that internationally and building those bridges between helping animals to survive, utilizing what we know, using all the expertise of Smithsonian, which is really vast, and then applying that to the wild and vice versa. 
It's incredible to hear about what you're doing because when Trisha and I were little and we'd go to the zoo, mm-hmm. the whole purpose was just to look at animals. There wasn't this emphasis on research and scientific studies. And so it's really interesting to hear about mm-hmm. all of this that you're doing now. Really, the topic of One Health or the thought paradigm that underlies One Health is something that's been increasingly recognized for the last 10 years. So when we were all growing up, I think the zoos were more about going to have fun. And now there's a much, much broader goal in terms of educating and then actually engaging folks in conservation issues. So One Health is bringing everybody into it. Human beings, animals, our earth. Exactly. It's the idea that There's a larger thought paradigm that the health of everything, environment, humans, and animals, is inextricably linked. And it used to be in the past that you could look at one species in particular and think, what do I need to do to conserve that species? Now it's really necessary for us to have a much more holistic approach and think about how all the pieces work together. What do animals need? What do people need? What does the environment need? And how does it all play together? So is what you're saying is if an animal is going extinct for some reason, that affects me as a human being? It does, and vice versa. Things that humans do can affect animals' uh, survival, and it can also affect human survival. So there's things that people do that put them in harm's way. So we're also starting to look at that from a behavioral perspective and find out what is it that keeps people safe? Like, what are the drivers of disease emergence? An example would be somewhere about 75% of the diseases that cause pandemics that are going to kill a lot of people, Ebola, SARS, influenza, Those are illnesses that are in the wildlife population and jump into the human population. Like HIV as well? Exactly, right. So if we had these programs in place now and we had them in place 30 years ago, what if there was no HIV? Can you imagine the amount of suffering and lost lives we could have avoided? So part of the idea behind this is if we wait to act until there's a lot of people dying, and then we try and figure out why are they dying? Let's build the laboratories. Let's try and build the competencies there to analyze the samples in a safe way. And then after we find out what the virus is, then we try and backtrack and say, where did this virus come from? And that's when we start doing wildlife studies. And after that, we try and figure out who the host reservoir is. And then we look at what did people do to come into contact with that host reservoir? We've lost months, years, tens of thousands of human lives, and millions of dollars. So one of the programs that we've been working with now for the last 10 years, previously funded by USAID and run out of UC Davis, is a program called PREDICT, where we do just that. We use modeling to identify the regions in which the next emerging disease is most likely to erupt. Then we work with those countries to identify a country coordinator within that country. So not Americans going over telling people in country X, this is really the way to do it, but the opposite, building that partnership with folks folks in that country to understand what are the goals and the priorities. And then from there, we look at where are the danger zones, building the laboratories, and then we start doing the surveillance of wildlife species. And as we're doing that, part of the idea there is to protect human health, to find out what viruses are there before it jumps. In the first 10 years, we've identified over 1,000 novel mammalian viruses. It doesn't mean they're all bad actors, but some of them are. But having an idea of what is there first, it really, really will help us a lot. So we do that. And then the great thing is that it's often the same personnel that we're training, the same needles, syringes, and laboratories, whether we're doing surveillance to save human lives or to save the last rhino or elephant. 
So as a veterinarian, it's really the perfect spot to be. It's where we get to work every day to save the lives of endangered people. And then the last part of it is like, who gets to do that? And the answer is we do. And the reason we do is because we work at the Smithsonian. Do you know right now, I know that you said there's thousands that we've identified, but is there one right now that everyone's going, oh my gosh, is this going to be the next thing? Or is it not like that? It's very close to being like that. What I'd like to really stress is that there are so many different disciplines and so many people who are really great in their field, and not everybody can do it all, right? But we can all do something. So this is an example, even within the PREDICT team, that we'll have modelers who give us ideas looking at the data of like where we should be looking. And then there's geneticists who help figure out which are the species that are close enough to humans that viruses are most likely to jump. And then we've got virologists who actually look at all the viruses and then rank them. So there are a couple of viral families that are more likely than the others to cause a problem. And that's really important as well, because if we want to use our resources wisely, we don't want to spend money looking at every virus and every species everywhere. It needs to be targeted and it needs to be iterative. While I don't want to guess what the next <laughs> virus is, we do know that influenzas in general, they're in that top three. And they do tend to mutate very quickly, and they have the ability to spread quickly and then take a lot of lives. Can wildlife get diseases from humans? Yes, wildlife can get diseases from humans. It's not quite as common, but there are some things that go back and forth, even within zoological settings. There have been reports of influenzas going back and forth between people and animals, and other things like tuberculosis in some species can go back and forth. So most zoos have a really very well-thought-out healthcare program to keep not only the animals safe, but to keep people safe as well. When you go to your job every day, and it sounds so amazing to us. What wows you? It's almost like the unsung heroes is what gets me every time. As a veterinarian, we get to be in the forefront of things a lot. And I really enjoy that. As the head of the department, I get to speak. I have the opportunity to speak to you guys. And so thank you for that. And I had the opportunity to be on that panel that Lynn Mento from Fonz hosted. Great panel, right? And it was a great chance to share information. I think the thing that gets me is that when ordinary people in the face of their average day do extraordinary things to help the team, to help animals, to help people. And there's a lot of it, whether it's a keeper at the zoo, whether it's a technician, whether it's a primate keeper, a geneticist, a reproductive physiologist. These are all these people that work that are so brilliant in their own mind and are kind of behind the scenes, but really complete the whole puzzle. Dora and I had the opportunity to visit the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute in Front Royal, Virginia, about a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And it was there that we were amazed and awed at the relationship and really the importance of the animals and their keepers. Can we talk a little bit about that? The relationship between animals and their keepers are really critical and often the untold story. There's a number of good examples, and I'll give you a few through my time. So I've been at Smithsonian on and off for almost 30 years. So I have a wealth of knowledge, or I should say institutional memory. That's probably better. The first thing that really struck me was 25 years ago when we needed to get a blood sample from an elephant. Marie, who's this teeny woman, she's the head of the elephant program, is next to this 10,000-pound elephant, and she just uh, looks at the elephant and says, Shanti, drop your head. This huge elephant brings its head down to my level, gives me her ear so I can get a blood sample. And I was like, that is amazing. Like, why does this elephant, who's so much larger, why does she listen to this teeny person? And it's important because they've spent years developing that relationship of love, trust, and mutual respect. 
Another example would be we were working with giant pandas to test a vaccine against canine distemper, but it needed to get done at a zoo where the pandas were trained and that was a science-based zoo. So why not us? The keepers have the giant pandas trained to sit there, put their arm out, and get a volunteer blood sample. The pandas don't really care. They'll sit there eating a healthy tree, a carrot, you know. (laughs) And we were able to vaccinate Meisheng and Tiantian and then take blood samples every two weeks for a year and demonstrate that the vaccine had a titer and it lasted an appropriate amount of time. And again, like, what was the hard part there? Was it vaccinating and drawing the blood sample? No, it's that the animals really, really have this great relationship with the keepers. One other story about the same sort of thing. When uh, Shanti, our elephant, had her first calf, Kumari, she was outside in the yard along with the same keeper, Marie. And in the wild, the elephants will take hay and cover up the baby so they don't get sunburned or injured by the sun at all. Kumari was lying there, and Shanti took hay and was covering Kumari, and then looked over at Marie and took some hay and covered (laughs) Marie. How sweet. Well, it's really sweet, but there's the principle again that there's a genuine trust and love. So when people say, you know, are animals happy at the zoo? I'm like, animals are happy at this zoo. I truly believe that the animals under the animal care staff's care are happy and well cared for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being a vet, though, to free-ranging animals, there has to be some danger. If you don't build the trust or have the time or have the experience to do that, can bad things happen? Bad things can always happen. Right. Working with wildlife is much different than working with the animals that are under our care here in the States. So in the wild, you don't have the chance for those animals to build a relationship with the keepers and know that we're there to do good things. In that situation, we work a lot with the partners in the country. So for instance, in Kenya, we work with Kenya Wildlife Services a lot. This is the organization that's responsible for providing care to wildlife, and they're an excellent, excellent team. I mean, the whole organization is great, and the vets there really know what they're doing. So it's their job to keep everybody safe. And there's lots of different protocols about how an animal will receive its meds by a dart and who does it when. So the potential for danger is there, but it's really very well managed. When Trisha and I visited Front Royal, we were fascinated by the migration studies. Can you tell us a little bit about those? We have a whole team that does just migration studies. There's the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, and they work primarily with birds. There's another group that's called Movement of Life that works with many different species. In both situations, the teams look at where animals go, whether it's migration from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, or for the Movement of Life, looking at specific animals by putting either a collar on them, a GPS collar, or even a VHS collar. And then that helps them track how much land an animal may need. We've done this in partnership with the Chinese government, looking at Przewalski horses, trying to figure out how much land they should set aside to make sure they're caring for the species. There's other situations. There's another one in Myanmar that we did recently that I'm really proud of, and that is, have you heard of a flying fox? No. No. It's a huge bat, and it's called a flying fox because it's sort of the size. So Google it. Take a look. It's really neat. This thing's the size of a fox flying yes. around. Yes. Okay, that's kind of like, whoa. <laughs> yes. If Imagine we, you drive. <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, bats are really important. They're pollinators. They eat lots of mosquitoes. So we want bats to stick around. But we also have to make sure we learn healthy ways of living with them because if we look at the species that are most likely to have a virus that can hurt humans, it's bats, primates, and rodents. So we want 
want to get an idea of what do these bats have and like do they have anything that can hurt us? So part of our work with the Predict team in Myanmar is we catch these flying foxes and take viral swabs and then find out what viruses they have. What if they have something? Where'd that bat go? If you get the results a few weeks later, where is that bat? One of the reasons I like this story, it really demonstrates all of the partnerships. We worked with our Movement of Life folks to put collars on these bats, GPS collars, so we could see where they're going. We wrote a grant through the Smithsonian Women's Committee to pay for the collars. We had a veterinary fellow who was funded by a different program. And then the viral titers were done by the USAID program. And as we're doing that, we're working with Burmese folks, so we're making sure we're transmitting the knowledge. That was a partnership that we're working on analyzing the data now that gives a really example of how so many different people and so many different scientific specialties can come together to find out some really important things. That would be an example of some of the movement of life work. Well, first of all, do the flying fox have teeth? <laughs> <laughs> I just envision like the Wizard of Oz. Me you know, too. Yes. yes. It's like that. Yeah. yeah. Those are monkeys. <laughs> the monkeys. The flying monkeys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not quite that big, but you're in the right category. <laughs> They're also really beautiful in a I strange bet. way. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. One of the big things you do is... I just don't want to run into one. <laughs> I don't think you will. Yeah. I think you're safe in Georgetown, okay? Yeah, I don't think we have any flying foxes in Georgetown, okay, yeah. One of the things you do that's really important is reintroduce animals to the wild. And I know we're saying bye-bye to Bebe, the panda at the zoo, which, by the way, as you know, has a huge fan base. People watch on yes. um, panda cam. Panda cam. <laughs> is it always successful? And what goes into making sure that it is? I would say that reintroducing animals to the wild is never always successful, and there will always be challenges. From our perspective, at least my perspective, the successful project is not one that doesn't have a bump in the road, but it's how you manage the bumps in the road. And that's a place I think that we're very good at in terms of a team approach, working together to figure out like what could go wrong and when it does go wrong, making sure you have abilities to respond to it right away. My team in particular is not directly involved in reintroductions. However, there's a number of different teams around the zoo. Mm. Even scimitar-horned oryx were recently reintroduced to Chad and are doing very, very well. And that's an example, though, of how they have vet checks ahead of time. They've got collars so the movement of life folks can figure out where they go. If they become ill or any pass away, then we had a training course. Again, not for us, but to teach the folks in country, this is how you collect the appropriate samples safely to figure out why the animals died. So it's a lot of it is, again, about using our expertise to build the knowledge and the capacity in country. We talked a little bit earlier also about the importance of partnership. And I think that's one reason that in general, Smithsonian and SCB are so welcome in places because we take that very seriously. Rather than going somewhere and saying, this is how to do it, our approach is much different. If we travel somewhere to where people are reintroducing animals, we work very hard to say, what is it that we can do to support your project? In the end, it's your project. They're your animals. Baby's not going into the wild, though. No, or so Baby right now will be going into a breeding center. We're all going to miss Baby a lot. But it's really an opportunity to enter a breeding facility to maybe one day have the offspring get reintroduced into the wild. So our Chinese partners have been thinking about that very seriously, protecting the land and looking at what it would look like to release animals. And I think we'll hopefully be a big part of that. Same thing with Tai Shan leaving. It was so sad to see him go. Mm. But knowing that one of his offspring might actually be helping contribute to the giant panda population in the wild, it's really worth it. 
So we talk about the health of the mind being equally as important as the health of the body in what we do. Does this apply to animals as well? The health of animal minds is very important as well. It's not my specialty, but it's a specialty that I recognize. So there's an arm in veterinary medicine called behavior, where people look at and study animal behaviors and contribute to wellness. And at the zoo, we have a person who specializes in animal welfare. So that connection, I think, is very, very important, being able to look and work with the keepers to identify, are our animals well, and are there things that we can do to increase that? We also have endocrinologists who can have devised ways of pulling different hormones out and of the feces and urines. They can look at stress hormones, so get an angle on is an animal stressed or not. So these are ways that together as a group, the behavioralist, the welfare person, the endocrinologist, the keepers, the curators can have a project and a picture together to say, well, you know, the behaviors suggest this, the hormones suggest this, the blood profile suggests this, and then collectively, what can we do to make the best enclosure possible. An example of that would be years ago, we didn't know how much elephants needed. When I first came to the zoo, the elephant enclosure was pretty small. The zoo made a decision to, let's look at the animals. What do they look like in the wild? It's typically a matriarchal herd that has lots of room to move, lots of rock and sand in different surfaces going up and down and going into water. And so that's why the exhibit was designed that way. I really like that that's an important focus of the zoo, that looking at the welfare and the wellness of animals is really up there. And also, I would say using some of the latest scientific techniques. So an endocrinologist isn't all about, let me just get these hormones, let me just do this and publish this paper. We want to make sure that the information we have has an impact and that will help us take good care of the animals. So I think that the animals at the National Zoo are, and the SCBI are really, really well taken care wow. of. And now what we're doing is using that information to apply that in the wild. Just this week, we've sent over an endocrinologist to Kenya to help set up the Endocrine Lab at Impala Research Center. It's a research center that we work on with Smithsonian, Princeton, and Impala. The idea of setting up this endocrine lab is so we can assess both rhino and elephant fecal samples from the last six months that look at not only for the rhino sample in particular, reproductive cyclicity. So which are the rhinos cycling? Are they not? And if they're not, is there something stressing them and what could that be? And the same thing with the elephants looking at stress hormones to figure out, are these animals well? And in order to recognize unwellness first, you have to have a pretty good sense of what's well. So those are some of the things that we're working on right now and just this week in particular. That's so fascinating. You know, what do you think we as humans can learn from the wild animals? I'm sure we can learn a lot in terms of how to get along. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I actually, in preparation, decided to look up how animals deal with aging. Mm -hmm. And the wolves are really interesting. They keep an older wolf in their clan because they actually have the wisdom to bring them through things that might be happening anyway. And there was a study done that those that have the older wisdom um, actually survive longer. Interesting. Another woman that we work with, Dr. Meg Crowfoot, is trying to find out how troops of baboons make decisions. Mm. Is it the males? Is it the females? Is it the subordinate ones? 
one of these projects we've done recently is to put collars on a whole troop of baboons, so like 35 of the 40, and they take data points every minute of 24 hours a day for a month. And then she and her teammates analyze and try and figure out who's making the decisions and is it matriarchal, patriarchal? And then our team is overlaying with that some of the health issues. So is it the healthy ones or not? Do you have a favorite that you your kind of go-to wild animal that you can count on? <laughs> it's funny because as a zoo vet, people will say, you know, what's your favorite animal? And typically it's whatever animal I'm working on right then because you could be working with a snake and say, oh, my goodness, this is just amazing. And then the next minute it's coral, and you're like, coral, I mean, this is truly magnificent and fascinating. And then the elephant and rhino, same thing, seeing an elephant or a rhino in the wild. They're just so impressive and massive. And then a, a bird takes off, and you're like, how do they do that? I am drawn to some of the African animals. I like elephants a lot, but I really like just about everything. I don't know if there's a species that I don't like. Even the rodents? Even the rodents. Yeah, <laughs> some of the rodents, you know, are just, yeah, just fascinating. We're doing a study with capybaras, the largest rodent, you know. They're, yeah. They're, fascinating. Yes. Mm -hmm. What does a day in the life of Suzanne Murray look like, and what is your main focus today? I would like to say that a day in the life of Suzanne Murray is fascinating. I, <laughs> I would not be telling the truth. I think at this point, the thing I can do the best and the most for the conservation for animals is to facilitate the work of others. So I take a lot of pride in the things that our team is doing. So I personally do phone calls and I write grants and I answer emails and I attend meetings, but that's a choice in life, right? I had many decades of doing the hands-on work, which was so, so much more fun. But to be at the spot now where I can facilitate it for others and be at an organization like the Smithsonian with this idea of this is what we're doing now. But if we did this, we could help people and animals around the world. That's a huge, huge decision and opportunity, responsibility and honor. I wouldn't trade it because it's just terrific. And our team was doing wonderful things. Having said that, so what are people on our team doing? Dr. Mark Valtudo is in China right now working with giant pandas and Chinese colleagues on health issues there. We've got Dr. Dawn Zimmerman, who leads our Africa Regional Program, and she's working on modeling for Ebola in gorillas. Can we vaccinate gorillas and keep gorillas and people healthy? We have a director of training who's looking at how do we make sure that our impact is sustainable? And part of that is not doing the work ourselves, but actually making sure we're building the capacity in country. So we have people coming all over the world to train with us and then vice versa. And we've just sent over to Kenya a veterinary tech technician, a curator, an endocrinologist, and a nutritionist to take part in a advanced medicine and rhino course. This is a course that we did along with Kenya Wildlife Services in partnership. So for us to be able to bring over these experts to work with KWS in the field, really, really super proud of that. The other thing I will be saying about MAC, who is our director of training, it's a program that was developed along with Morris Animal Foundation and some uh, donors from Smithsonian. Together, we have hired two veterinarians in Kenya, one American and one Kenyan, working side by side for two years with the idea that everybody has something to learn from the other. Not anyone has all the answers. So if you put two people on the ground and develop that partnership, a lot gets done. And it can't be in a vacuum either, right? So we punctuate it with stakeholders meetings so we can work with our colleagues to say, what does that look like? So that is going really, really well. And then the other part of it, if we want to make conservation sustainable, we need to look at the next generation and figure out what is it that these kids need. 
So we're also part of a girls' literacy program in Kenya. And these young ladies are just fabulous, thoughtful, smart, energetic, just looking for the chance to really engage. So these are the people that are going to be deciding in the future how many kids to have, where to live, where they get educated, how to feed them. If we want conservation to continue and to have a really good chance and have it be in the best interest of people and animals, that's the way. What else do you want our listeners to know? Earlier, we had spoken about how no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And the more that we can create these partnerships and work together, the more we're going to be successful, especially if we're trying to look at solving some of the world's greatest problems. And so I gave the example of, you know, the bats in Myanmar, and that's not the world's greatest problem, but it is an example of how four different groups came together with tremendous expertise to learn about something regarding conservation and health, and then we instill that knowledge with folks in country. Another partnership that we're really proud of is something that we've done recently with Children's Hospital. If we think of One Health being a continuum of health that involves all species, people are in that too. They're not all that different than orangutans or gorillas or chimpanzees. We've had a long partnership with Children's Hospital over the last several decades looking at medical care of some of our patients at the National Zoo. But what we had also been talking about was when older people, older like my age, mid-career people, 30s, 40s, and 50s get ill, It's really hard to think, like, why me? What did I do? And we're adults, and we have the language and the capabilities of kind of working through it, and it's still really difficult. What does it mean, and what does it look like if you're a young child and you don't have that, and you think, like, how did that happen? And it's much more difficult, and you have to, in some level, personalize it. And there's actually the thought behind this started years ago when my oldest son, who's now 22, was about eight. We had a sea lion, Norman, who had an asthmatic condition and needed to be nebulized. But the zoo didn't have a nebulizer, but my son did. So we called home, and he was already in his pajamas in bed. Can we borrow your nebulizer? So we went and got him in the nebulizer. And the keeper had trained Norman to breathe in a traffic cone. Hold his breath and breathe out. So we hooked the nebulizer to the traffic cone. Norman got his medication and did very well. And then a few weeks later at a soccer game, a dad came to me in our neighborhood and said, I wanted to thank you. My son has had unregulated asthma because he just felt so bad. Like, why do I have to take meds? What did I do? And once he heard that someone as cool as Norman had a similar illness, the light switch went on. And he's like, I'll take the meds. So that kind of made a couple of thoughts in our mind of, wow, animals, that continuum can be utilized to help kids not feel so alone and not personalize disease. So along with Children's National Medical Center and Friends of the National Zoo Funds, we have put together a photographic exhibit. It's up at Children's Hospital now for the next two months, aimed at that, aimed at how can we use animals and animal health issues to make children not feel so alone. So these connections are, sometimes they're bad connections. We don't want to share viruses, but sometimes the connections are really good and powerful. This is one of those. We ask all of our guests which book they think everyone should read. What do you think? One of my favorite books is To Kill a Mockingbird. I think of that a lot in terms of all the lessons it can teach about social justice, being kind to others, what happens when you're not kind to others. So I would pick To Kill a Mockingbird. 
Suzanne, Trish, and I are so grateful that you came yes. to be with us you. today. I think we have Jane Goodall to thank <laughs> for inspiring you to do yes, all this or my good dad. work. Yeah, or dad. yeah, or my dad, or, or, dad. Na- or National Geographic. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of praise to go around, right? Well, we're just grateful you're doing the work you're doing, keeping the wildlife healthy as well as the human population and conserving our environment. It's such important work. Thank you so much. Our team does such great things. And I think Smithsonian, I feel like I'm a poster child for Smithsonian, so I'm sorry about that. But I think that the reason we're successful is that there are so many really dedicated teams and one institution that really spend a lot of time saying, like, how can we work together and how do we solve the world's problems? And also what's going on good in the world and what are examples of that? Coming up is Earth Optimism. It's an event where we actually look at some of the success stories. It's important for people to know some of the really terrible things that are out there, but it's nice to share some of the things that are really successful. So thank you very much for an opportunity to talk about what we do. It's always thrilling for me, so I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.